welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about whatever I want. Right. And then I spend an hour telling it to you and you learn whatever I want. And then you teach it to someone else. Oh, yeah. It's like a circle. That's that's good, too. Yeah. Or a chain. Probably not a circle because they're not coming back and teaching it to you afterwards. Right. Not a circle. I'm hoping to inspire people to just look up stuff that they think is interesting. They may not want to pass on what I think is interesting, but maybe they'll hear me talk about what I think is interesting and then go look at things they think are interesting. Right. Of course. So I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Today, we are here to talk about um, where did that saying possibly come from? Mm Mm-hmm. Or why or how. Yes. Um, the origin stories of all these things. That's the gist of it, really. Um, you could call them, you know, idioms and expressions and sayings and phrases and terms and whatever you want. But um, I'm mostly going to go with the word cliche. Sure. Um, for two reasons. Okay. Cliche is a very broad word. Sure. It encompasses everything we're going to be talking about. Good. And also, the etymology and origin of the word cliché is interesting to me as well. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to take a guess. French? I mean, you got that right. Yes. But that's not really an etymology. Podcast you can't over, just be I like score French. points. That's it. Yeah. You're at a spelling bee and you're like, origin of word, please. And they're like, Greek. Yeah. That's it. Win. No, I'm not going to define it, though. Oh, fine. You can define it, then. <laughs> you have to define it. But anyways, I mean, you know what a cliche, the definition of a cliche is something that is overused. Merriam-Webster just says it's anything so commonplace that it lacks freshness or offers nothing new in the way of interest or insight. Okay. So most things could be this definition. I guess so. Cliches, it's not exclusive to language. It can be, you know, plots can be cliche and color schemes can be cliche and music can be cliche you know any yeah. anything really um so obviously french score you got like a quarter of it i did i mean it literally has an accent quarter. on a part of it so i don't know how many points you really get for knowing it's french but it's something i won't yeah. take that away from you i contributed to the team so you it's sure fine. did it originated in the early 1800s okay and it meant to produce or print in stereotype so, okay. a stereotype being a printing plate that they used mm. so they could crank out a bunch of the same print, you know, yeah. of the same sign, you know? Sure. Um, so, during the printing, the noise of the printing plate, or like the whole printing process, was a clicking sound. Okay. Cliche. Cliche. Like that? Cliche comes from the French onomatopoeia for the clicking noise they heard. Cool. I'm learning where stereotype comes from and cliche. That's fun. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's where stereotype comes from the printing industry. Yes. I learned that in my... Uh, I don't remember. Some okay. kind of editing You'd course. you learned that. I learned that. No, no. I just meant... I don't remember which editing course, but sure. one of my editing courses in which we talked about printing because yeah. yeah, people used to use, you know, different technology. Yeah. I, I learned it on a podcast. This one. <laughs> You learned something new. Yeah. That's the goal. Okay. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I definitely learned that where this word comes from. That was interesting. Um, and you're about to see there There are a few expressions I did want to know the origins of that we 
got some pretty fantastical stories from, but probably not, you know, true stories by any means. So I'll warn you before we start that a lot of these stories are probably apocryphal. Mm. I think I've included, you know, the little asterisk note of this probably isn't true on anything where I was reasonably certain it probably wasn't true. Um, But I almost guarantee you something that I say matter-of-factly probably isn't true as well. You have to remember when things come from a long time ago, it just can There's get very jumbled. speculation there is involved, a lot of speculation. Yeah. And like like I said, apocryphal stories where you're going back in time and kind of rewriting the history for, oh, this story would be so good. This would be a great origin story kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but like there's there's just one that I didn't even find any like plausible explanation at all, which was two shakes of the lamb's tail. Like I really wanted to know why that came to be how we said, I'm going to do something quickly. Uh, so we can make it up right now. There was a lamb, Mary's little lamb, in fact, was very speedy. He got into the amphetamines and yeah. speedily wagged his tip. I was going to say it ran fast normally, but uh-huh. when it would start to shake its tail, it was like a propeller on the back and force it forward faster. And that's where we get it from. Coined here. You learned it here first. Yeah. It didn't say that we were experts or right about everything, so we'll go with it. Well, if that one doesn't have a history, it's just right for us to make one up. So, um, putting that one aside, how about you teach us something? Great. I will. Okay. So, as you know, I do. There are some expressions that you know when you use them, even if the words are convoluted, you you understand the meaning of them automatically. You know. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. If you think about that for a second, you're like, all right, I get that. You know, two birds with one stone. Like, they're, they may be figures of speech, but sure. we understand what the whole purpose is just from the words that they used without yeah. understanding context or whatever. Idioms and other things um, generally aren't that easy. Mostly we see it and we're like, why does that mean... <laughs> what it means but we say them so plain as day we don't even think about it yeah i mean they i become just said one like common they just become common we just pick them up and accept it at some point which is why they're cliches of course so my first one that i picked was to steal someone's thunder mm-hmm. um this expression comes from zeus definitely doesn't oh maybe comes from the early 18th century though Okay. Uh, so, a British playwright, John Dennis, he invents a new way of making thunder noises on stage for his play, um, Appius and Virginia. Okay. But apparently the play was bad. Hmm. And it closed, like, right away. I was going to say, I hadn't heard of it, so obviously it was bad. Oh, that's... that's Because we know you're really into, like, 1800s English yep. plays and plays. Very. So, you would know. So, so, so very. Yeah. So then, soon after this, this guy, John Dennis, is um, in the audience of a production of Macbeth. Mm. That one was popular, by the way. <laughs> I've heard of that one. <laughs> With another... It was another theater company entirely. And he found out by watching that they had stolen his thunder-making machine. And he is said to have jumped up and accused them of stealing his thunder. Cool. Um, And, of course, you know, to this day, the expression is 
to, you know, kind of stealing the, uh, maybe attention instead of stealing the actual, like... <laughs> thunder itself. But yeah, you know, not a thunder machine. But It should be updated to they stole my thunder machine. How dare you steal my thunder machine? Yeah. You always want the thunder machine to yourself. I do, typically, yeah. So, speaking of the theater. Okay. Let's go next into break a leg. Okay. Meaning, of course, good luck. Yeah, not break a leg. It's not intuitive. If you did not speak English, you would be wondering what the heck. Yeah, that In that case, they're threatening you. Which not is the so whole much. point of idioms. Really, they don't translate across languages. So, you know, think about how confusing it would be for an English as a second language speaker to come here and hear these expressions. And so, yes, this phrase is also rooted in the theater community, which is known to be superstitious. True. Um, so performers believe saying good luck would give you bad luck. Mm-hmm. And so they went with the reverse psychology of thinking of something bad to say so that it would give you good luck. Okay. So break a leg was just what they went with. I don't know. It isn't, there's no explanation for why that became the bad thing they wished for, but the whole gist of it is they wanted to wish a bad thing. So to force a good, good thing. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like jinxing. That's how the theater, theater gods worked, yes. Um, so it's believed to have originated actually in the American theater scene. Okay. In the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Some believe it was adapted from a German saying, uh, Haus und Beinbruch, which is neck and leg break. Oh, like really bad luck. <laughs> yeah, breaking your neck. That's the little, taking it a little further. Yeah. Um, continuing the leg theme. Let's continue it. Pulling my leg. Mm. Meaning teasing, which often involves like a joking, lying type of um, teasing. Um, a white lie of sorts. <laughs> Is that going to be one of the ones later? <laughs> it will. Okay, great. Um, but that one was like a little unsatisfying, unfortunately. Uh, but we'll get there. Okay. So this is one of the ones where there's just no real good answers here. Um, I'll tell you two of the most commonly repeated theories, but they're uh, 90 per- they're, they're not right. Okay. But this is what people online are going to say are right. Sure. But I've read enough to know they're probably not right, but we don't really know. Okay. So the first most common theory you're going to read online is that there were these thieves in Scotland Mm. or any other place. Scotland. Scotland was the first part place that I read. Yeah. But they, they would pull at people's legs to trip them and then rob them. That sounds like teasing. So the thing is, though, that if you look at this myth more and more, every story has, oh, no, no, not in Scotland. This happened in Victorian London. No, this happened in the medieval markets or this happened wherever. So the lack of consistency is, you know, one mark um, against it. Um, But the real thing is that there's literally no evidence, not even one shred of evidence that this was a thing. People just this clearly was made up from somewhere and then spread around. So I don't think it's that one. Um. So here's the second most common explanation you're going to find is that there's this place called Tyburn that until 1783 was where they executed people mostly in England. Okay. Um, like Oliver Cromwell, for instance, was hanged there. Um, so, I mean, he was 
he was hanged there, but only after he had spent three years buried in Westminster Abbey. Oh. <laughs> Presty survived that. So, okay. So the pulling my leg theory, this is just, that's a, that's beside the point. Okay. I just, I just wanted to mention that because it's interesting that they exhumed him in order to hang him. Yeah. Three years later. Well, he apparently deserved it. Oh, apparently. Anyway, so the pulling my leg theory is that people that were called hangers on were hired at Tiber and executions to hang onto the victim's legs in order to end their life quicker. Great. As an act of mercy? Or trickery. Um, you know, I'm not seeing where the lighthearted jokiness comes in for this one. Um, but it's almost definitely not true. First, there's the point is that it doesn't have anything to do with the current meaning of the phrase. So there's just little way to see how that could have uh, came about. And then also the expression wasn't known during the centuries when these public suspension hangings as compared to long drop hangings took place. So, okay. yeah. Doesn't seem all that valid. The real date of origin <laughs> is more likely 1880-ish. Okay. Um, the first use of it in print is probably in 1883 from an Ohio newspaper called the Newark Daily Advocate. Um, and they had written, it is now the correct thing to say that a man who has been telling you preposterous lies has been pulling your leg. So the fact that there we have this evidence of them in, like explaining to their readers how to use this phrase is like pretty clear evidence that it's a pretty new phrase at least in this area so sure. that's probably around when it was invented and we don't know why unless it was imported from somewhere else but even then we haven't found written evidence from other places yeah. so it's okay. unlikely again to continue the legs let's continue the legs cost an arm and a leg okay which of course means that it costs an exorbitant amount of money sure um but this is another saying that has a very popular online story behind it that turns out to be false. Mm. And it was the story that I had actually heard a few years ago. So I'm glad to know I looked into it and, and learned that it's false. So the tale is that portrait painters would charge more for larger paintings. So head and shoulders is the cheapest option, followed then in price by, you know, a portrait which would include the upper body, so your arms. And then finally, you know, the long range, you're painting a whole person. Now you have arms and legs. So cost an arm and a leg just because the painting would be so expensive because you have so much of yourself in it. It made sense to me when I heard it, but um, it's, yeah, probably not true at all. So painters did charge more for larger pictures, but there's absolutely no evidence that it has anything to do with limbs and okay. not just how big the canvas was. Period. Right. Not necessarily what they put on the canvas. Right. And then the phrase is just likely much more recent than this painting theory would suggest to us. So that's okay. probably just not true. Um, a likelier explanation is that it, it derived from uh, two earlier phrases. One would, I would give my right arm for whatever. And even if it takes a leg, I'll do this thing. Those were both coined in the 19th century. And it is definitely an American phrase, that much is known, coined sometime after World War II. Oh, okay. Oh, very recent. Yeah. 
So in this case, it's really just arm and leg are used as examples of items that no one would consider selling unless it was at an enormous price, right? Like it's, yeah. it's a, it's a, that one's actually pretty just. Understandable. Yeah. I just thought there was more to it, but there is not. Okay. A myth, in fact. Fair enough. Okay. Pass with flying colors is next. Mm-hmm. Meaning when you pass it like easily or with really high marks or something like that. Yeah. Um, so this phrase originated in the so-called age of discovery. So oh. this is like between the 15th and 17th centuries when Europe was just sailing everywhere. And yeah. I'm going to put discovering things in air quotes. Discovering yeah. new things. Oh, look, there's this thing here that nobody knew about. No, and these people here, here didn't. Not yeah. people. That was the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but that's called the age of discovery by historians. Correct. So we're going with it. Yeah. So ships would return to port with their flags, which are colors. Like if you've heard of color guard, that's like flags. Yeah. So. Yeah. With their colors raised or lowered to signify if they'd been successful or defeated or whatever it was. Um, so really it was just that with flying colors meant that they'd successfully completed a task. Um, even though like the idiom um, connotes like you really were successful, not just like yes yeah. or no. Um, but at the time it just meant did you succeed or not. Okay. Um, speaking of flying. Flying by the seat of your pants means that you don't really know what you're doing or, you know, kind of no way of knowing if you're on the right track, that kind of thing. Right. This one's not about ships, though. This one's actually about flying. Okay. Um, it goes back to the early days of aviation and probably originated in Great Britain as flies by the seat of my trousers. Oh. Then it was Americanized, fly by the seat of his pants, in the 1930s. Um, so... You know, when pilots first started flying aircraft, they didn't have any of the electronic gadgetry, no navigation stuff, communication stuff, just like nothing really. Yeah. Um, And so they had to learn to react to the feeling of the plane and the body part that had the most contact with their plane is their backside. The seat of of their their pants. pants. Okay. Um, so, you know, early pilots were able to estimate wind speed and temperature and condition of the airplane simply by feeling and paying attention to their senses. So as a result, the pilot is flying by the seat of their pants, using their intuition, and they're just winging it. Got it. Yeah. Um. It's just winging it in there as well? I, no, I decided Mm. not to, yeah. Okay. It was just a good one, that's all. Yeah. So, white lie. We're on to white lie now. Um, A trivial or or diplomatic lie seems to be the more kind of common connotation of this word. That that you're lying in order to save someone's feelings. Uh, Yeah, that's a good explainer to it. I hadn't thought of before. Mm. I like that diplomatic lie. Okay. (laughs) You can can have it. I, I made that one. So the Oxford English Dictionary, which of course is a very good dictionary. Uh, of course. I trust them very best, explicitly. Best dictionary, some could say. <laughs> they they define a white lie, well, one of the definitions, as one meant to protect someone's feeling. And they trace it back to a 14th century letter. Okay. Um, Merriam-Webster says that Thomas More writes in the 16th century, he hoped he was not so superstitiously voracious as to reckon every white lie as black as murder. Thomas More comes up a few times, by the way. He was a pretty influential writer and person. Um, 
don't really know anything about him, but that's okay. as much as I've gathered is he was very influential. Um, so white, there's nearly nothing to this one. It's literally just that white has this morally or spiritually pure kind of con- like meaning to it. Um, but then in maybe the 14th century, that's like maybe the same letter even, it was the first time that Oxford's English Dictionary has a record of it meaning more like free from evil intent or innocent or harmless or whatever. Okay. So it's literally just been used just to mean this ever since its inception. It's just a very old, very old term. All right, fine. Yeah, not as interesting as I hoped that one would be, but now you know. Okay. I like the next one, though. Great, let's go there. The next one is to get off scot-free. Perfect. Don't look at my screen. Okay. How do you spell scot-free? S-C-O-T-T? Minus a T? Yeah. S-O-C-T-T minus a T. (laughs) (laughs) S-C-O-T. The whole point is it is a one T. We are not talking about a person named Scott, which apparently people on the internet think this phrase comes from some American guy in the 1800s named something Scott. Anyway, it's not. It's not that. Okay. It's not that at all. It's not about Scottish people. Great. It's, It's about none of these things. It's, in fact, probably the oldest, well... It's definitely not the oldest one we have on here. It is a very old one, though. Great. So, S-K-A-T. I would say scat, but I'm guessing it might be pronounced more like Scott. Okay. It's a Scandinavian word for a tax payment type of thing. Okay. This is already making more sense. And the word migrates to Britain. Obviously, the Scandinavians were all over Britain. They're a little Um, related. But I'm saying that's how old this is. This is like the 10th century. I don't even know. 11th century? Someone better correct me. Something around there when the the Scandinavians were still running amok in Britain and mixing their words together with Old English. So um, it's very, very old. Okay. So Scott became just the name of like taxation um sure levied as early as the 10th century as a form of like you know relief for poor people it was a redistributive tax so they would take more from the rich and give to the poor so since then they've used scot as a term for tax in various forms there was a church scot and a rome scot and a soul scot and just in medieval England, the Scot was a tax levied on the members of a village or town, and they all had to pay it in proportion to the size of their land. Makes sense. Yeah. Also, I'm really glad we didn't name our children Scott, because the more I say Scott in this context, the more annoyed, <laughs> the more annoyed I am at Scott <laughs> right. for taxing all these people. Anyways, so some people got off scot-free, however, because, like, for example, if their house was built in, like, a hill with no water or a place that flooded a lot... They got to get off scot-free because their lot sucked. So that was kind of kind. I don't know. That was nice of those medieval people to recognize that. Yeah. Um, The first reference in print to scot-free is actually in a forged copy of the writ of Edward the Confessor. Mm, Forged. We don't have a precise date for this forged version of the writ. Right. But just keep in Mm. mind, Edward the Confessor died in 1066. And the copy was made... Presumably, they think, in the 13th century. Oh, wow. So so we knew it was a thing before 1066, and then the copy was made. So this 
I mean, unless they added word in the forged old. one, but that seemed unlikely. It'd probably be a word word well, for word copy. Well, if they know copy. it's a forged one, I was going to say they probably do know. Yeah. Okay. I don't know though. You're right. If the first reference, that's confusing. Why would the first reference be in a copy? Okay. Well, the use of the figurative version of this phrase, like now, where we're not talking about a Scott tax, but which someone maybe escapes punishment, because it used to just mean you escape tax. But we know that these days. It's more used if you just escape a punishment. Sure. Um, so the first time it was used like that is uh, in the 16th century. I imagine it was also Thomas More. I don't know. It seems to always be Thomas More. Or <laughs> the other guy Google that Thomas. wrote. Or, yeah. Or the, there's another guy that wrote a book in, in the 16th century as well. And it seems like half these expressions are in there. So Yeah. I mean, I agree. There were only two people who wrote books in the 16th century. So that makes sense. Only two. Yeah. Um, now we're going to move on to one of my favorites, which is just desserts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm assuming you know how many, how to spell this one too. Yes. How to spell everything. It's a trick question. Does that help? okay. No. Okay. So dessert, let's agree on something. Okay. We I disagree. (laughs) We would, uh, normally pronounce two S's as dessert and one out. One S as desert. We can agree on this, yes. We can agree. The phrase just dessert is pronounced as dessert and spelt with only one S. Merely one. Merely one. One S. So you all know. The statistics actually are interesting on this. If you if you look at Google results for the wrong spelling plus the like for the uh, on the right spelling, you get three times more popular results for the wrong spelling. Sure, I could than the right spelling. If you do a search of all published material, so, you know, where an editor has been involved, the right spelling occurs 1.5 times more than the wrong spelling. Okay. Still not great. That's 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 not a number that you want to yeah, <laughs> see okay. as an editor, but um, that's kind of interesting when you think about it. So here's the reason. I'll explain to you the reason that it only has one S, and then you're always going to remember it. You're never going to spell it wrong ever again, because I know you guys are all writing this phrase on the yeah. daily. Well, I mean, and the other thing, too, before you go there, is if you need to know how to spell desert versus dessert, all you need to remember is that S's are good, and cake is more delicious than sand. So... Uh, the more S's you put into the word, the better it gets. Oh, I was just always taught that you always want more desserts, so there's more S's in dessert. That's way That's shorter. Basically, and what we're getting to, yeah. <laughs> so the phrase comes from French. Okay. The French verb deserve with one S, deserve, D S E R V E R, which means to serve well. Okay. Um. So. It's it's odd, and I know it's odd, but we've actually been using it since the 13th century in this connotation in English. So it means things deserved. Things that are deserved by you. Your desserts. Your deserved things. Okay. Um, so you could say their desserts for getting good grades were an extra hour of TV, but people would look at you weird. Okay. Yeah, they're just desserts are that they get to do this thing. They're desserts. Um, but, you know, instead we now say they deserved to watch an extra hour of TV because they did this. Right. But it's still a valid expression. People just might look at you weird is all I'm saying. Um, it does usually have a negative connotation, just desserts. Yeah. But it doesn't have to. It's a phrase that just means what you deserve. If what you deserve is something good, then that is also your just desserts. It's just not normally how the phrase is used. Got it. Um, 
Okay, Baker's Dozen. I've always wanted to know why Baker's Dozen means 13. This one seems apocryphal just because it's so silly, but everything says the same source and nothing says it's not true, so okay. I'm going with it. In the 1260s, British bread makers were gaining a reputation mm. for shorting their customers' bread. They were charging them the same prices for smaller and smaller loaves. And so King Henry III gets real mad because bread. Yeah. And he puts in this new law that standardized the weight of the loaves. Um, but he's a little harsh. He's a little strict. And so if you undersell bread, now you're going to be beaten and fined and jailed. Wow. <laughs> or maybe just some of those, not all of them. Okay. But still, it's pretty intense. So as you can imagine, um, bakers didn't really want i mean maybe harsh punishment works because they really didn't want to be didn't want to run afoul of this law and they realized you know baking is kind of hard to predict so they kind of made enough dough to always make a 13th loaf kind of just in case the rest were just underweight and just threw it in there okay yeah they really just they're scared so they just gave you my apparently there was a time for a year at a time that 14 was generally found in a baker's dozen because they're just real scared Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This one I have never even thought of till now what a weird expression it is, but to butter someone up. Why? People like to slide? <laughs> but meaning, you know, to flatter someone and curry their favor, you know, I just... Yeah. I could not imagine where that could have possibly come from. So there is one line of thinking that... You're spreading nice words, uh, like you're spreading butter across the bread. And that, you know, since the origins of butter, people have been writing about how satisfying spreading butter onto something. And it just came from there. Just boring. There's a much more interesting story, which again, probably means it's not the true story, but way better. So, so we're set in ancient India right now, okay? Perfect. And we're thinking that the source of this butter-inspired phrase is actually ghee butter okay ghee butter is also called clarified butter it's what's left after the water has evaporated out of the butter and you just have your milk solid separated from your butter fat um it's really popular in you know southeast asia india um in cooking there so it's also been used in religious ritual rituals and uh, traditional medicine since ancient times in these places great so here is the thinking as far back as 1600 bce Wow, we're, really far back. We're sure this happened, yes. It was common practice to spread or throw like balls of ghee butter at like statues and sculptures of deities. And like you would do this during these worship rituals to win favor from the gods. I don't know, because butter was decadent and they're just, sure. you're just you're giving them, you're offering them the butter by yeah. rubbing it on them or whatever it is and asking for what you want. Um, so I think that's a way better origin story. It is. Um, there's no evidence that comes from that practice, but... But you can choose to believe it. Now I learned that that's a real thing that happened, that practice, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Bob's your uncle. It made sense for a certain set of people. Do you know what that one means in our everyday English these days? I mean, I've used the term, I've heard the term, am I really confident... It's kind of like this, this, and this, and then Bob's your uncle. Like you're. There you have it. Yeah, Simple th- it's as done. That. Yeah. 
simple as that. Again, the origins are un uncertain here, but here's the most common theory. So there was a man who was the prime minister, conservative prime minister, I don't know why that's useful information, named Robert Gascoigne Cecil, third Marquess of Salisbury. Okay. He um, made sticks. Pardon me? Did he make sticks? I don't think he made sticks. That was a different Salisbury. Yeah. So he appoints his nephew, Arthur Balfour, as the chief secretary for Ireland in 1887. And this nepotism was unpopular. Sure. And surprising at this time. And people were unhappy. So here's the thing. You know, Robert Gascoigne Cecil, third Marquess of Salisbury, we could say that he maybe would go by Bob, especially to those familiar to him, like his nephew, whom he appointed. And so here's the thinking, is that this expression came from he had no qualifications besides Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle was your only qualification. Simple as that. Okay. So, and apparently the longer version, this is a very British expression, and it's still much more popular there. And the long version, which I've never heard, is Bob's your uncle and Fanny's your aunt. <laughs> and then, okay. <laughs> and then... And then they shortened it to the first part. And the thinking is that they shortened it because the name Fanny started to gain a sexual connotation throughout yeah. the 20th century. So, um, but if you're unawares, Fanny does not mean the same sexual thing here as it does mean over there. Right. Yeah. Accurate. Yeah. It's like saying... Here it means your, your bum. Yeah. And over there it would, would not mean that. Correct. It would mean a female genital area. Um, so the next one to just completely move on from that is to give your two cents, mm -hmm. Con contribute to your opinion. Yeah. Um, so the earliest reference to this idea is from the Bible, but wow. we don't think that's where it comes from. Oh, <laughs> there's a story of the widow's might in the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke. Um, where there's some rich guys that are giving a bunch of money to the temple. And then there's this like really poor widow that gives her two small coins only. And they're making fun of her. And um, Jesus is saying, no, I prefer her. She gave all of her money. That's all she had. And you guys gave us, sure, you gave us lots of money, but you still have so much money left. And this is not what charity really is. And she gave her two coins, like her two cents. But that's not where this comes from. Okay. Um, it's just, again, written as, like, the origin of things because people like the Bible to be the origin of things. Um, oh, I wonder who those people are. This particular idea is, is though, probably taken from the original English idiom to put in my two pennies worth or my tuppence worth. Hmm. Tuppence is um, more fun. It is way more fun. So it's, it's kind of like you're deprecating your opinion it's only worth two cents. Just like take this with a grain of salt. Like just, just, you know, like that kind of expression, like um, to lessen the impact of what you're about to say, or to just be a little more forceful of what you're about to say to somebody was kind of the original way in which people used it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it could be derived from a penny for your thoughts, which is something we're going to talk about next. Okay. Like a sarcastic response, because a penny for your thoughts is a pretty old expression, which we'll find out. Um, and it's like, oh, I said a penny for your thoughts, but I got two pennies worth is what the, maybe it could have come from. Like, I don't need your two pennies worth of thoughts, your two cents worth, you know? Um, there is hard evidence that the, the U.S. phrase 
is first used in print in 1926. Um, and yeah, it's just, now it just kind of means your opinion. Like I said, it used, yeah. used to mean a valueless kind of worthless opinion, but now it just means I was going to say, I, I don't have the, I don't feel there's the connotation anymore of it no, being valueless. Okay. It certainly does not Got it. hold that connotation anymore. Um, but yeah, so Penny for Your Thoughts, speaking of pennies, is goes back to at least 1522 when it's published in Four Last Things, a work by Sir Thomas More. And this book was like about meditations on death and God's judgment and pain and how to combat spiritual diseases. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's basically a wise man has fallen silent and in order to garner his wisdom, money is offered. And it's like a proverb thing. It's used the okay. same way today. Um, despite more using it, it didn't really get popular yet until um, John Haywood wrote it in a book in 1547. It was a 200-page book um, with a very weird old English name that I'm not going to read out, but the new name is the Proverbs and Epigrams of John Haywood. Um, he just collected sayings, though. He didn't make them up. So he okay. collected sayings, and it has sayings like, so this is 1547, and it has things in it like, Rome was not built in one day, and all that as well ends well. And it does include the famous penny for your thoughts. Um, interesting thought. Thomas More was an important confidant of Henry VIII, and this John Haywood was very close with the king as well. And so there's a theory that maybe King Henry really liked to say this, and that's why these two guys close to him have both sure. published it in a book. Um, according, I, I looked this up just just for fun. According to the UK's National Archives Currency Converter Program, I have been able to find out that a penny in 1540. I'll find out how much your thoughts are worth now. Okay. Your thoughts have, have gotten a little bit of less inflation. valuable. Oh. Well, because it used to be, penny used to be worth a lot more. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, so your thoughts have got less valuable now. Right. In 1540, a penny would be 2.03 pounds today. And in okay. Canadian, that's $3.24. Okay. So, yeah. There yeah, you go. Decent, yeah. Yeah. So... Next, I want to go on to a controversial, possibly controversial one. Oh, boy. The exception that proves the rule. Oh. Because this has always really confused me. Exceptions clearly can't prove rules. That's like the literal opposite thing. So what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything the way we use it. Let's just throw that right out there. It's dumb. It doesn't mean this. Right. There is a alternative origin that's less popular that I'll start with, which is that the word prove is used in the archaic Old English meaning of test. The exception tests the validity of the rule. But that doesn't make sense the way we use it either because no. we're saying that it tests the rule and that's why the rule is good, not that's why the rule doesn't work. So, no, doesn't make sense. Here's what I found that does make sense. Okay. The exception that proves the rule is based on the Latin phrase, exceptio probat regulam, which is a legal principle that is like, if we're making exceptions, it must mean that there's a rule. Like, we can't have exceptions if there is no general rule to begin with. So the fuller version is actually exceptio probat regulam in casibus non exceptus. So it says exception proves the rule in cases where the exception doesn't apply. I'm going to give you an example here. If a sign in a plaza somewhere says no skateboarding during 9 to 5. Right. You can infer then that you can skateboard at other times. So the exception there that proves is a, that rule. a rule. There, yeah. Yes. So, so in general, here's what we're saying. 
the presence of an exception proves a general rule exists. Okay. So it just doesn't mean anything like how we use it. And the way we use it makes no sense. And I'm not going to use this anymore. Yeah. I actually, I don't think I've ever used it because it annoys me so much. But yeah. but I get, I get, I get that now. I feel like I can use that in a more literal term. Yeah, but the and problem like is that that's just not how anyone uses it anymore. It's how I use it now. Good. I'm yeah. glad. Take it back. Um, okay, I got to speed up. I got to speed up. Okay. The whole nine yards. Go the whole nine yards. Okay. You had guessed when we talked about this earlier that this is about football. Because yeah. obviously yards. Why else? Yeah. Okay. So it's not. It's about war. So, okay. World War II specifically. Okay. During Trenches. the war. No. Fighter really? pilots. Really? Are equipped with nine yards of ammunition. Oh. So when they run out of ammunition, they tried their best. They, they shot all their bullets. The they guard the whole nine yards. Okay. I know, right? Okay. Now we're going to talk about... Um, two expressions that, um, well, I, I, I think are, I think are kind of interesting. So spill the beans, mm. which, you know, reveal on private information or secret information. Yeah. This is another one where everyone tells the same story, but they're all like, it might not be true, but it's the only one we can think of. So, okay. So here's what we think. It probably dates back to ancient Greece. Okay. People used to vote anon- anonymously. Okay. And when we say people, we mean, you know, uh, uh, men yeah. that own property and slaves and stuff. Yeah. Anyways, you know how it always works. People that were allowed to vote would vote using beans. So they could vote anonymously. They would use white beans for the yay vote and the black or dark color for the nay vote. And the votes were cast in secret, put in, you know, pottery jar or something. And okay. so if you were to accidentally knock over the jar, you spilled the beans and everyone sees the colors that came out and it's, uh, you spilled the so soil, like ruin the secret. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's, okay. I like the story, but might not be true. Sure. Um, and then, and then there is paint the town red. Right. You know, party hard. Of course. It most likely originates from a, Legendary night of drunkenness. What would you expect otherwise, right? I guess, yeah. <laughs> it's very literal. So, no, it's actually super literal. Oh. In 1837, the Marquis of Waterford, who was a known drunk and, okay, lush and mischief mm. maker. So, you know, when you're rich, you're not a drunk, you're a lush. And yeah. you're not a, you know, vandal, you're a mischief maker. Um, he was drinking out in the town. Through Melton Mowbray. This is an English town. Melton Mowbray. Um, they vandalized things, knocked over flower pots, pulled the knockers off of doors, broke the windows of buildings. They painted a toll gate and the doors of several homes and a swan statue with red, red paint. They don't ever explain why. Drunk. They were Lush. right. Exactly. So, you know, they paid for their damages, but um, that's one theory. And there is a second less popular theory that the phrase was born out of the brothels of the old, you know, American kind of Wild West and, you know, referred to the men behaving as that their whole town were a red light district. Okay. Yeah. Um, This is one you might have heard before. Can't hold a candle to someone. Do you know the origin of that one? 
No? I feel like when I looked it up, I I realized I'd heard this before, but a long time ago. So, you know, the phrase mean, like, you're less skillful. You can't be, you're not comparable to someone else, you know. Like, you can't chase them down and literally hold a lit candle against them? No, once I read this first line, it's going to make a lot of okay. sense. So, this is back to the 1600s. We have apprentice and master relationships. Okay. And apprentices held the candle to provide the light for their masters while they were working. Okay. Sure. The apprentices were, of course, unskilled. Yeah. So to say to someone I couldn't even hold a candle was quite the insult. You're not even skilled enough to be someone's apprentice is what we're trying to go for here. Um, the first time the phrase is recorded in history was one Sir Edward Deering in 1641, quote, though I be not worthy to hold the candle to Aristotle. Cool. Okay. My only metaphor, uh, simile, sorry, my only simile here. Because similes usually are pretty self-explanatory. Typically, yeah. Dead is a door now. Now, again, it's explanatory that you're dead. It means you're dead. I think everyone can understand that. But I've always wanted to know how, why... In the realm of dead things, why is a doornail particularly dead? Why is it the example of the dead thing that's not even ever been alive? I don't understand. Yeah. So here's the story. Here's the lowdown. Wooden doors were secured by doornails. Okay. Makes sense. This is how they used to do things. What you have to realize, though, is that we're not in current day. Nails are often reused. You cannot go to Home Depot and buy a box of nails. So, in general, nails were tried, they tried to keep them really undamaged when they were using them. They'd try to pull them out and use them again if the wood was done. So, with door nails, you can't do that, though. You have to really secure your door. So, you hammer the nail through one direction you bend the the end that comes out you have a really long nail so i'm trying to say mm-hmm. so the end of the nail comes out the other side you hammer it to the side and hammer it back the way it came like when you're sewing and you go back through yeah. the fabric and that's actually called clenching the nail so after you clench the nail then it was impossible to use again it was a dead nail but you didn't do that to other nails so this was especially dead because you didn't do that to nails. Okay. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. Dead as a door now. Okay. <laughs> I'll accept it. Yeah, okay. Um, to rest on your laurels. Mm-hmm. Do you know... Do you have a guess? We did the Greek... The garden mythology where we talked about laurels, you know, being the symbol of accomplishment, especially in athletic events where you get a crown of laurel leaves when you you know win especially apollo's games and hellenic games so do you have a a guess i mean i would just i was just gonna guess it's like you've made your accomplishments and now instead of keep going you're just gonna like rest on the like you're gonna rest now you're just gonna like stop go on top basically well now, we, we use this phrase to mean you're coasting by on your prior accomplishments. It's a negative phrase. Yeah. You're just coasting. You should, you're should you relying on your reputation or whatever that you built up from before. You do nothing now. Yeah. So it's definitely a negative phrase. Um, but as I said, um, laurels, it, it's date, it dates back to in Hellenic times where you'd wear the laurel crown. Um, Apollo, you know, is the god of music and prophecy and poetry and all these wonderful things. It was associated with him. So when they won the Pythian Games, if anyone remember, Apollo kills the Pythi... Oh, God. This was so long ago. Kills a python with a bow and 
So there's the Pythian Games. Anyways, I don't remember all of it, but Roman leaders took this lore and they, of course, you've seen lots of pictures of Roman leaders. They would usually wear their laurels for military achievement. Yeah. Um, resting on your laurels was a good thing in that day. You're basking in the glory of your achievements. You are venerated. And then sometime in the 1800s, for some reason, it switched to mean someone that had been overly satisfied with their past triumphs. Okay. So we don't know why it became an insult. Sometime in the 1800s, it just did. Oh, well, fine. Okay. Here's one. Read between the lines. Right. Meaning to understand kind of the implied, implicit message, not what's written. Does this have anything to do with editing? And people literally writing between the lines? It does have to do with people literally writing between the lines, but not with editing. Okay. So, again, maybe apocryphal. But we're saying that this comes from cryptography. It was a common practice when you're going to use invisible ink to use a document that already had visible writing and write with your invisible ink between the lines. Okay. And then, of course, the receiver of secret messages would use heat and or acid to reveal what was written there. So it became an idiom in the mid-1800s, and we think it's from cryptography. Cool. But, just a side note, do you know how old Invisible Ink is? 1800s? One of the earliest writers to mention Invisible Ink is one Aeneas Tacticus of the... Well, he's one of the earliest ancient Greek writers on the art of war. So, 1700s? <laughs> In the 4th century BC, he mentions it when discussing how to survive under siege, but he doesn't say, like, the type of ink or the ingredients. Okay. And then we have Philo of Byzantium, who is probably the first writer, well, he's the one, the first one we know of to describe an invisible ink with a reagent. Okay. Um, 217-218 BCE. And using oak fruits and vitriols, which are metal sulfates. Yeah. So, yeah, they had that knowledge a very long time ago. That's cool to me. That is very cool. Um, okay, what about bite the bullet? Have you ever heard of the origin of that phrase? That one's pretty popular. I don't think so. Okay, well, it's, you know, meaning to do what's necessary, even if it's hard to do. Right. Um, this one has two explanations as well. One of them's more literal and obvious. So during battlefield surgeries, maybe soldiers were told to bite down on bullets to deal with the torturous pain, or I'm sorry, surgery, with no anesthesia. Mm -hmm. um, they use lead bullets, which even though it's not really great to put in your mouth, it's soft. So when you bite down... Yeah, you have a little bit of give. It has some give to it, yeah. But here's the other origin story. The other origin story is it came from the Indian Rebellion of 1857. Okay. The powder car for cartridge for the rifles that the, the British side were using had this paper portion that they needed to bite off yep. before loading their guns. Yeah. So sepoys, which is a word I've heard before, but I've never looked into it, is, is a native Indian serving in the British Army, a sepoy, um, were really mad when they found out that there was actually pork and beef fat on these cult like cartridges and bullets. Oh, you know, Hindu and Muslim personnel, like Hindu yeah. can't have the cow fat, Muslim can't have pork fat. They're, they're pretty mad about this. And they refuse to fight, but then the British force them to anyways, because of course. Um, and they had to do something awful to them, you know, consuming the fat by biting this bullet. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it was, 
anyways, the first time it was used as an idiom in writing was 1891 by Rudyard Kipling. But that that's the, again, probably not as true, but cooler origin story. Got it. Um, I want to just end this off with some animal ones. Great. Here's an expression that I know you, Everett, had never heard before. And a lot of people I asked had never heard it either. But I'm not crazy. And it is an expression. The expression is the worm has turned. Okay. And it usually means someone who is previously like downtrodden kind of mm-hmm. gets their revenge or like that kind of thing. Okay. So it doesn't just mean like something changed. It means specifically like someone's fighting back or got now has the upper hand that had the lower hand kind of thing. Kind of like the tables have turned. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So probably it started as even a worm will turn. Okay. Um, first recorded in that previously mentioned 1546-7 collection of Proverbs by John Haywood. Um, so it's probably an evolution of an old proverb. Tread on a worm and it will turn. So the meaning is that even the most humble creature tries to counteract, you know, rough treatment or like even the most docile creature retaliates if you push it too far. Okay. So Shakespeare... Um, put this into his play, Henry the Sixth, Part Three. Lord Clifford is urging the king against lenity and harmful pity. And he says, To whom do lions cast their gentle looks? Not to the beast that would usurp their den. The smallest worm will turn being trotted on, and doves will peck in safeguard of their brood. So it means that the worm's going to turn on its attacker in the sense of counterattacking and fighting back. Um, but worms don't do that, as we know. Obviously, it was about humans, but... Yeah, you know, I get it. It's interesting. Uh, this is, for me, one of the most interesting ones of the episode, and it's the term scapegoat. Got it. Yeah. So, one, you know, someone that's wrongly blamed for everything. Yeah. In the Old Testament, God ordained a particular day, Yom Kippur, to be when the entire nation of Israel would stop working, and the priests are going to atone for the sins of their whole nation. So one of the rituals they had to do, according to God, was the scapegoat. Quote, this is from the King James Bible, by the way. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And that is from Leviticus. So the idea is a scapegoat carries the sin of the people away with it, cleansing Israel for another year. So here's the thing, is that this is probably all stemming from a mistranslation. Okay. Okay. So the English scapegoat is a compound of an old verb, archaic, that we don't use anymore. Scape, which means to escape. Uh, okay. And goat. Okay. To mean bah. <laughs> now here's the issue. Is that in this Bible passage, in the original, was the word Azazel. Okay. And goat, or scapegoat, is Ezozel. And they mess the translation up. Because as you might know from listening last time, Azazel is the name of a demon living in the desert, and we did mention him talking about stealing the knowledge of the work or of working the forge from Yahweh. Right. Um, 
So ancient biblical translators thought Azazel referred to the goat itself, confusing it with the phrase Ezozel, which actually meant goat that departs. Yeah. Uh, so like the whole the Bible is now corrected and the Bible will now say Azazel in it, in these passages, if you look them up. But it's a, it's going to stick around now. Now scapegoat. It's it, become common language now. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Turkeys are next. Quit cold turkey. Stop doing something immediately, completely. So the first appearance of this is, um, well, in the quitting context, is actually from a British Columbia newspaper called The Daily Colonist in 1921. Um, it describes patients of a doctor trying to kick their addiction. It says, quote, when they go before him, they are given what is called the cold turkey treatment. Okay. So the most likely origin is that um, it's actually an evolution of old expression, talk turkey or talk cold turkey, which means to tell someone something straight and be completely honest. So it comes sure. from another figurative expression. Um, some of the literal explanations are kind of silly. It comes from the fact that actual cold turkey is very easy to prepare and requires very little preparation time. I don't think that's it. Um, another explanation said, well, it's withdrawal symptoms. You know, when addicts stop using drugs, they could get goosebumps and chills and, and pale skin. And, and then they look like an uncooked turkey. Okay. Um, I don't, Maybe. I don't I'm not sure if I buy it, but the San Francisco Chronicle <laughs> did report it in their paper. Um, so recorded uses of the phrase seem to suggest that the talk turkey explanation is the most likely. Talk turkey was first recorded in 1824, referring to pleasant discourse. Talk cold turkey was then used to mean engaging in straight up discourse in uh, about 1920. We, we see the evidence of it used like that. Okay, cats. There's some cat ones. Cat, got your tongue. You can't speak. Right. This one's kind of awful and also... I don't know. Maybe I want it to not be true. Anyways, here are the two possible explanations for this one. So there is a whip you probably have all heard of called the Cat of Nine Tails yeah. that the English Navy uh, used. And um, so the pain was just so terrible that when you couldn't talk afterwards, then the cat got your tongue. Okay. Explanation possibility number two is that in ancient Egypt... Some of the punishments for lying or blaspheming was that your tongue was cut out and fed to the cats. Sure. So, you know, Both one of those of wonderful explanations might be it. Speaking of cats, let the cat out of the bag as another, we've already used one idiom for it, but another idiom for revealing some secret information. Yeah. So here we're, here. In here ancient we're, Greece, did the cats usually get out of the bag and knock the, the pottery over to spill the beans? <laughs> okay, this is one of the ones that's like, you find this explanation everywhere and you think this sounds not right. And you keep looking and you're like, yeah, it's not right. But there's okay. no real actual one provided. So the one that everyone on the internet says is, well, in the medieval markets, or again, whatever time period you want to pretend this is from, people were going to sell piglets tied up in bags for farmers to carry home. And dishonest merchants would put a cat in the bag instead and tie it up and... You know, when the farmer, if you accidentally, like, let the bag fall open, you're letting the cat out of the bag, revealing the secret that you were being tricked. Um, and then the other possible explanation was back to the cat of nine tails that, like, was stored in a sack. So you went and got the cat out of the bag. Okay. Um, but if we're judging by Snopes, which I, I'm not saying I completely believe, they make the very excellent point that 
These are probably both not real. But the first one, you know, the cat piglet thing is especially unbelievable. Their main piece of evidence is that don't you think it would be almost impossible to mistake a suckling pig for a cat, even in a bag? We know what a cat would act like. The claws, like, I, I just I just think yeah. that it would be, I agree with Snopes, it seems improbable. Got it. Okay, almost done here. Crocodile tears is an interesting one. So crocodile tears meaning, you know, fake crying, usually aiming to manipulate with your fake crying, yeah. pretending to be feel bad about something when you don't. So this dates as far back as Plutarch. Plutarch's pro- uh, proverbs is that the phrase crocodile tears was was well known um, in ancient times. Um, it, it compared the crocodile's behavior to people that desired to cause someone's death, but then publicly be upset for them is how he yeah. used it. So same kind of way as we use it. Um, there is a story in the 14th century, which kind of spread the expression in the English speaking world about a knight that went and traveled through Asia. Um, and in it, it writes the description of crocodiles. These serpents slay men and eat them weeping and they have no tongue. Well, they obviously have a tongue. I don't know what was going on with this book. But um, the whole eat them while weeping thing comes up. Um, and a writer called Edward Topsell writes about it later as, you know, he sighs and weeps as though he were in extremity, but suddenly he destroyeth them. So, you know, the whole, they're crying, but they're vicious at the same time. Yeah. Is where this comes from. Um, Shakespeare regularly references it. Uh, Othello, Act 4, Scene 1, in which Othello convinces himself his wife is cheating on him. He says, if that the earth could teem with woman's tears, each drop she falls would prove a crocodile. So, while crocodiles do have tear ducts, the weeping (laughs) is usually to lubricate their eyes. Especially right. when they've been out of water for a long time. But evidence from 2006 paper is actually suggesting crocodilians do weep while they're eating. <laughs> this might be a thing that they just physiologically do. So the current hypothesis is that the tears are caused by a hissing of warm air during feeding. The warm air is forced through the sinuses, which stimulate their tear glands to empty fluid into their eye. Right. Uh, another interesting fact to end on tonight Bogorad's syndrome is a condition which causes people to cry while they're eating. And because of this idiom, it's also called crocodile tears syndrome. Cool. If you're curious, it's caused by faulty regeneration of your facial nerves during recovery from Bell's palsy. Oh. Yeah. So I think that's about all we have time for. I wrote a few more, but I think those are the most interesting out of all of them. So I'm going to leave it there. Very good. Um, and uh, very, very soon, we're going to have a really fun episode with some guest stars, a little, a little quiz show about one of my favorite people from history, Pliny the Elder. So keep listening for that. It's probably not going to be the next episode, but I, I'm really hoping it'll be the one after that. Summer's busy, yo. It is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know what's going to be in two weeks. You're going to have to be surprised just like I will be. Surprise. <laughs> So once again, thank you so much for listening to Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Bye.